Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Greg Willems, who serves as president and CEO at the Kansas State University Foundation. And Greg and I haven't seen each other since yesterday when we were both at the Big 12 Development Conference. I should have just recorded this on my iPhone, but we had a lot of other stuff keeping us busy. And Lawrence and the KU team did an amazing job hosting, which I think Greg's allowed to admit, but I forget what the full terms of that uh, relationship are. So, uh, Greg, it's great to see you, and I hope that you all had a uh, quick commute back to the Little Apple. Yeah, well, thank you for that great welcome and introduction to the session, Brett. Yeah, certainly, we could have spent more time thinking about this uh, yesterday. Long time no see. Uh, and absolutely, it's a spirited but friendly rivalry between our, our great colleagues uh, down the road in Lawrence. Uh, they did a phenomenal job with the conference and uh, a lot of great engagement, both professionals and uh, a lot for them to be proud of. I, I enjoyed being part of the experience. Well, I have been to, uh, as you have, hundreds of conferences over the years. And for all of you listening who have never been on a Big 12 campus or maybe aren't even sure which schools are in the Big 12, uh, what I can say is that the tradition of the Big 12 Development Conference really should serve as a standard for every other peer group in this sector. It is a blend of team building and hospitality and learning and fun that you just really don't find uh, elsewhere. And, and so why don't you just give the quick summary of, of why you believe in the Big 12 Development Conference you all hosted last year. And if there are folks listening that are thinking, ah, oh, that sounds fun. I wish I could get my conference together. Um, where might they want to start, Greg? Yeah, I think, no, and I, I certainly agree. Um, the Big 12 does a fantastic job. And I know there are other conferences around the country that have their way of kind of gathering and aligning uh, leadership uh, episodically to strengthen each other in the profession. But uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I've, I've been to a few others and uh, heard colleagues talk about them. And I certainly think there's something special about the Big 12 and the attention to detail and the rigor that they put into it. You know, it's interesting now that I reflect on this, my experience goes back to my time at Texas A&M early in my career. You're talking nearly 20 years ago. And uh, after Texas A&M entered the Big 12, uh, you know, this conference was strong and going then. So I can reflect on the early part of my career as a frontline development officer going and seeing that engagement, experiencing that way to think that it's maintained its momentum and, and the quality over you know, a, a decade or two is pretty special. And so I think that speaks volumes to the schools, the leadership, and their commitment to doing this for each other to strengthen the sector and what we do for our universities. So um, something that I think anybody who gets the opportunity to come to the Big 12, uh, you won't be disappointed. No doubt, no doubt. Um, well, Greg, you just touched on Texas A&M, which leads to my Really, first question um, for the the podcast interview portion, which would be, uh, take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Greg? What was he into, and what led you to Texas A and M University? Gosh, junior year of high school, boy, that's <laughs> that's going back in the year. So that's certainly that was eighty three, eighty four time frame. Um, you know, it's interesting. My family had moved uh, from Florida, where I grew up in my youth. We were in Arizona one year. My father changed careers, and we ended up in College Station, Texas. So I finished high school there uh, and chose to go to Texas A&M. I'm a first-generation college 
student. Uh, my family didn't have a lot of experience with universities, what they could mean, how to pick one. Um, you know, it was a grand, you know, university right where we were living and in true Willem's family fashion. Well, why would you go anywhere else? It's right there. So uh, I was fortunate and blessed to, you know, out of high school, uh, you know, find that I had a place that I could go next. Um, it was a great experience, uh, you know, going to university there. Um, so I graduated from Texas A&M in 1988. And thereafter, I embarked on a career in sales and kind of business development for about 15 years. Uh, and so and so you're at school, you're studying business management. Footloose is playing at the beginning of the night. Uh, every breath you take or total eclipse of the heart is playing at the end of the night. Are you targeting sales when you get there? Like, how, how do you sort of shape uh, towards that first entry level um, role? Because you are, you know, somewhat unique among the leaders in the field that I've interviewed where you actually started outside of the sector. Usually it goes something like, yeah, in my sophomore year, I heard about the call center. I went over there. I worked it. I kind of enjoyed it. I was pretty good at it. And then they said, why don't you just start working here? And I did. Not the case for you. Yeah, I think, you know, growing up, I certainly had an outgoing personality and and my parents uh, were very engaging in community and the things that they did and uh, gave my brother and I a lot of freedom to kind of stretch our strengths and think about who we were and, and what we wanted to be. My mother and father would say, naturally, Greg ought to go into sales or some kind of business development kind of field. Um, Why so did you say that? that? What did she see? What are the examples? Are you slinging newspapers? Are you doing, uh, you know, like like side hustles, selling, I don't know, lawn mowing? I mean, what were you doing? It was probably just interpersonal skills in the uh, the work that I did, the engagement at school. So certainly, you know, in high school, I was a pretty outgoing individual and pretty engaged, played sports, had a lot of relationships there. Uh, you know, summer jobs. And then as I took on other jobs, naturally, you know, found it pretty easy to engage with people, engage with customers. Uh, and I just think they saw naturally that you're comfortable with it. You're good with people. You ought to leverage that, that talent. So what'd you sell? So you'll love this. So first thing I, I would say that you might ever say it was selling anything was working at a Dairy Queen, uh, working the counter and engaging with customers and thinking about how to give them a great experience, how to listen, uh, you know, what how to your respond most to challenges. Mem most memorable day at work at Dairy Queen. Anything stand out? You know, probably the most memorable. I would say I was 15 at the time and the manager was going to be out of town. And I was probably one of the younger members of the team, but I was pretty responsible. Uh, so she had me work the continued late shift, uh, close up the restaurant, shut everything off, count out the money, make out the bank receipt. I hid the money in the freezer that night. And it was too late to go to the bank and then locked up the store. And I remember telling my parents that I'd been handed this responsibility and they were kind of taken aback that, you know, uh, that happened. And my dad probably had the reflections. Well, I'm sure he did a fine job. But uh, yeah, that was pretty memorable that somebody saw enough in me in, in terms of responsibility and, and uh, kind of honesty and integrity that you, they trust a 15 year old to do that. I love that. I mean, I, I don't want development officers listening to start hiding the money in the freezers. But if you do do it ethically, uh, as Greg shared. I yeah, love so that. There, I think the next kind of uh, job that I had was working at a lumber yard. 
of all things, Wix Lumber. So working with the customers there, uh, delivering materials, engaging, uh, working with, uh, you know, colleagues, uh, you know, other staff members that were managers, leaders, uh, you know, that taught me a lot about learning how to be a good employee, how to listen, uh, you know, how to take good direction, uh, how to be responsive and, and professional, and certainly dealing with the customers, you know, showing some appreciation, showing some respect, some sincerity in what you did uh, seemed to be a natural thing to me and something that certainly helped me think about how I want to interact with people in any walk of life. And then coming out of A&M, where'd you work? I actually went to work for an entrepreneurial company that used insurance and financial consulting in the healthcare industry. And so uh, I was assigned to sales territory in Southern California, cold calling on hospitals, administrators, CFOs, uh, materials managers, uh, trying to uh, earn the opportunity to go in and present what our company, the CIEC agency, could provide in risk management and or financial cost savings programs related to their capital equipment. Um, it was certainly an eye-opener to be a, a 22-year-old kind of freshly minted uh, professional going out and uh, trying to present with polish and presence and um, a sense of worth that would be worthy of their time to earn the right to for them to take that call and decide, yes, I'm willing to meet with this person. Uh, I learned a lot through that experience. My first seven years doing that work for the CIC agency taught me more about uh, business development, relationships, uh, presenting a value proposition, uh, listening to objections and how to respond to those than probably anything else in my life. What did you have to work with, Greg? Like, take me back. You're 23. It's a Thursday. You sit down for work in the morning and you're supposed to book meetings. I mean, what do you like? Literally, what are you working with? Who are the leads? What do you know about them? Go. Yeah, I would say, you know, the first year or two of my career didn't even have a computer. So let's recall the era that I graduated from high school and then went into college. When I was in college at Texas A&M, no cell phone, none of us had laptops, none of us had desktop computers. Computing was done at the computing center. And when I got out of a university and went to work for the CIC agency, went to work and they gave me an American Hospital Association guide, a printed book with the names and titles of the CEOs, CFOs, the phone numbers and a telephone. And you would cold call and engage them uh, about the opportunity to present what the company is, what we do, who I am, and ask for the opportunity to meet with them to share in more detail what we do. The level of knowledge they had about your company before you picked up that phone, I'm guessing is close to zero or maybe it's zero. So you've got maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds to hook them and have a chance. And I'm sure most of the time you didn't, but when you did, what worked out? Do you still got that script in your head, Craig? What worked out? Yeah, you know, it was, you needed to keep it tight, concise, and be clear, you know, who you were, what the organization was, what do we do, and why does it matter to the sector? Certainly, if we had customers or clients in the area, you could represent that to bring some credibility, but you're spot on, Brent. This is pre-internet, uh, pre-website, pre, and we didn't really do any advertising anywhere. We might've gone to a few conferences here and there, but I would say the vast majority of the time, 95% of the time, anybody I engaged on the phone had never heard of us. 
uh, we were completely coming out of the blue for them. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can recall all of the, the messages. No, no, it's contents, but I'm just know. trying to set context because I feel like, first of all, I have I have done that, right? I still sure. kind of do that um, uh, at at times, but it, it is so different than when you are representing a brand that the prospects not only know, they probably love, it helped them form some of the best relationships of their lives. Maybe they met their spouse, maybe their best friends, their groomsmen, their bridesmaids. Like the starting point in advancement is about as good as it possibly could get if the other end of the spectrum is a phone book of healthcare executives. Yeah, so to your point, um, you know, calling on behalf of that company and what we did, you know, there had to be questions in their mind. Who is this? Why do I need them? Why should I spend any of my time? So you had to get pretty quick to the chase of what did we do, why it could matter, and why it might be worth a half an hour's worth of their time to meet me and let me share a little bit more detail. And that's what I tried to do in as quick and as polished a manner as I could to say, I'm not going to bore you all day on the phone. But all I'm asking for is a half an hour window to meet. Let me share what we do, and you decide from there. Certainly today, as you as you just recounted, Brent, most of the people we're calling they have an experience, a connection to this place that I don't have to uh, invent or or imagine. It's something that it was part of their personal journey, and more often than not, there's something there that was meaningful to them. Uh, so you're not starting cold. Uh, they know who you are, where you are, and what you're about because you journeyed through the institution. Uh, and it's, it's still a matter of being as, as crisp and as succinct as you can be about who you are, what you do, and why it might be important for us to get together and talk about how we might deepen their connection to the institution. And that's kind of how you think about it. I have said in the past that the coldest lead in advancement is warmer than the warmest lead in that kind of sales job that you just described. Maybe that's not 100% accurate, but it's it's pretty close. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's it's almost like calling on a long long lost friend. If you think about many of our alumni who've been out for a decade or two and maybe have not stayed connection to the connected to the institution, when they get that call, there's something there that you know it's somebody you knew in high school that you haven't talked to in 25 years. When you hear that name on the other end of the phone, you're like, oh, wow, it brings me back. Those memories, that connection, what I cared about them, it warms up really, really quick. Um, yeah, so you're doing that work. Seven years is is a good run when you're in that sector um, at, at a single organization. What was the next step? And at what point, I mean, are you connected to A&M along the way? Or are you kind of off doing your thing in Southern California, career focused, you know? They are where they are. Yeah, I would say, you know, and just to finish up on that, you know, what what I would say about that seven-year journey taught me a lot about being really deliberate, effective with your time. So it was highly commissioned sales. So let me be clear, three quarters of your earnings in a year was based on success in, in earning business. And so you got uh, a lot of accountability and a lot of, at, you know, at stake to be successful. Um, yeah, so I would say, you know, my connection professionally, I would say when I graduated from Texas A&M, I was still in town for the first part of my career, and then in California, 
uh, and then moved back after a couple of years. So being back in College Station where the, the business uh, was headquartered, it wasn't hard for me to stay connected to the institution in my younger years. So being close in proximity to stay connected to friends that I went to university with, uh, football games, the other activities that naturally most of us connect with um, in the early part of my gra after graduation was pretty easy. Um, thereafter, as I ventured out, my career extended in development when I left Texas A&M Foundation, went to UBC and then to Hawaii and then to Kansas. You know, it, it created more distance. Um, but again, I, I was able to stay connected through relationships there and, and other avenues. But what was the entry point into development by way? Uh, I mean, what led you to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I've gone through the hardest part of the sales career, which is the entry level cold calling, don't know what I'm doing, you know, develop the confidence to grow the book of business, um, and then ultimately to, to pivot into this world of philanthropy. Yeah, I had had two careers with two different organizations in sales business development over that 15 years immediately after graduation. And, and, and toward, I would say, 2000, 2001, I was really evaluating, you know, I was married, young family, you know, I was on the road a lot, you know, three weeks out of a month, most of the week. I was really evaluating, you know, a career choice. Is there another use of my skills and talent that I didn't mind traveling, but you'd like a different cadence, probably a different mission orientation too, to be honest, um, transacting for the sake of shareholder value or, um, you know, private wealth development for a couple of independent business owners. And, and the company, you know, uh, mission and motivations probably were wearing on me. Uh, so just through relationships in the community, uh, guys I went to church with, guys I played softball with, I was telling them that I was thinking about a career change. A couple of them worked at the A&M Foundation and said, oh, my gosh, you ought to do this and told me. Who, about were, they? who, who were some of those guys that you're playing softball and they're saying, oh, come on, give it a look? Yeah, David Hicks in particular was one. And then Carl Jedicke, um was the other one. Uh, David Hicks in particular was somebody who worked at the AM Foundation uh, that I went to church and played softball with. Carl was somebody uh, didn't necessarily know through those avenues, but got to know him through the community. And just talking to those two guys, they said, you know, you're born to do this um, and inspired me to apply for a couple of the positions. So now take me through the, you know, first week, first month at the foundation. You've been hammering it out in the commercial sales world, dialing for dollars, you know, some question around mission. Now you're back home. Was it an immediate fit? I mean, even thinking about some of those early calls where now you're calling long lost friends yeah. and you're trying to reconnect. I mean, did it just feel like a night and day difference or did it feel actually maybe quite similar? I mean, what, what was that like? Yeah, I would say two things. Number one, I, I, I probably showed a little intelligence of asking a few good questions of some of the people that worked in the profession. Tell me about philanthropy and really how it works. I, it would be fair to say I didn't have a very sophisticated understanding of what real philanthropy was. I knew what it meant to give a gift, a, a very basic gift, you know, thinking about giving $100 to a local community organization. But this was a whole uh, elevated realm of, uh, you know, grand scale investment in philanthropy. And I, I wanted to ask some good questions about understanding that and what, what are the motivations for people. Then I would say, secondly, as I got into it, and I would say, 
even then we were still pretty limited in the systems we had. So I would print out a list of graduates and just start calling and basically in cities uh, to introduce myself and, and talk about, you know, uh, what we did and asking for the opportunity to meet with them. So the initial shock was how easy it was to get appointments. I was going to say, like, you must have felt so yeah. confident making that outreach relative to the phone book to somebody who's never heard of you, never thought of you, probably not interested in hearing from you. I mean, what a difference. Sure. I might have made dozens of calls to get one appointment when I was going to California to work with hospitals. And literally, I'd sit there with this, you know, this list and I'm going through it. And I, OK, that's four in a row and oh, five. And it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, you're trying to book two or three days worth of meetings in Houston or Dallas. And, you know, within an hour, you've made these calls you've engaged with. I was just shocked. I was yeah, I thought to myself, either I just got, you know, this was the lotto jackpot trifecta of the right people in a row to say yes, or I'm better at this than anybody in the world has ever been. Um, but it, the reality is, to your point, Brent, um, I think there's a familiarity, there's a desire to engage with alumni just naturally lends itself to them being willing to listen. But given everything you just said then, okay, what holds development officers back from getting those visits, from having those conversations? If it's, if it could feel, and we're not trying to belittle anybody's work, and we know it can be a challenge out there, but at the same time, Greg, lived that before and after of absolute grind to feeling like he might be the best fundraiser in the world by just kind of doing the basic blocking and tackling, showing up getting the list, making the calls, doing the follow-up, booking the visits, doing the work. Yet there are people listening right now thinking to themselves, what is that guy talking about? It isn't that easy. And they're feeling like their current role as a development officer feels like your role as an entry-level sales rep cold calling healthcare executives. So where's the disconnect? Well, let me be clear. I'll put the record straight. I certainly wasn't the greatest fundraiser in the world and had a lot to learn but I would say that my years of, of but you felt it's also fair to say you felt the flow, you felt confident yeah. it was working yeah. right away. Yeah, I think what I was able to hone in skills in the private sector helped me really figure out how to lay out what would be my comfortable, most strong way of initially engaging with them, gaining their interest, uh, piquing their curiosity, and earning uh, credibility to say, here's somebody worth visiting with. So I thought to myself, what's the way that I represent who I am, why I'm calling, and why it would be worth meeting with me? I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about what's the strongest way to present that, and then thinking about how do you handle questions or objections, and how do you bring credibility to that conversation in the other people you may be interacting with down there, or the things that you're doing that could make it easier for them to say, yeah, I, I think this would be worth my time to meet with Greg. Um, so, you know, that just was something that was natural for me to really walk through. How do you be crisp, clear, and worthy of people's time in as quick a fashion as possible? And my objective on the phone was never to over-detail them with things and try to get my stick out. It was to get an appointment. Right. Because once I got in the room one on one with them, I knew we had more time. And if you were interesting and you engaged in the right way, you'd earn the right to stay in that room. Greg, can I ask how much 
when you reflect on that time, it does just seem like both in your sales role and in the early development officer role at AM, there, there was a real simplicity to the work. Yeah. You had the names, you had the basics, you had the number, and you called. And maybe you emailed, you know, maybe you wrote a letter once in a while. But when you think about and I'm sure there were distractions at the time and, you know, people can find ways to, you know, do other things, but, but on one hand, you know, I'm obviously trying to find ways to bring more technology and more insight and, and tee it up. And, and at the same time, like how much of that has just been a distraction where people are just doing other things instead of looking at the list, picking up the phone, calling, looking at the list, picking up the phone, calling. I mean, is there a little bit of like, how do we just get back to basics that is lacking or maybe all of the technology is, is a blessing. Yeah. I think there's, there's a dynamic tension between, or, or, you know, conflict between those, those two realities. Certainly for me in the early stage of my career, since we didn't have as much of this technology automation and, and uh, some of the resources that we have that can strengthen what we do, uh, I wasn't overwhelmed by it or I wasn't distracted by it. Or, um, you know, I think some, fundraisers can find themselves looking for every little scrap and data of knowledge to feel they're equipped enough to engage. Whereas I was much more comfortable less uh, and just being really crisp and tight about what would be meaningful and enough uh, to engage them in the right way and not be overwhelmed uh, and paralyzed by over-analysis and data and overthinking it versus just getting on the phone. So uh, for me, uh, keeping it simple, keeping it easy was uh, clear. And my mission mandate in my head was uh, crystal clear. Number one, it was get on the phone to get visits and then go conduct those visits and, and earn the engagement uh, to continue that dialogue and those next meetings. And then it was the follow-up when I went back to the office and all I did was grind on that. Uh, all the other things that could come into my a sphere of being, whether it was the university wanting me to do this or that, or other things that I could be asked to do that weren't development, that weren't getting visits, conducting visits, and following up on visits, I got rid of it fast and walked away from it. I take that back to my early career, um, and being on a commission sales, you got really, really focused about your time and what mattered. And so for me, it was pretty easy to say, this is the only thing that's gonna deliver gifts and outcomes. And there's a lot of other things that could be luxuries that I could do, but I'm not gonna um, belabor myself with them. I'm gonna stay focused. If you've spent time with Greg and some of his teammates are listening and smiling because you will hear him say, get visits, conduct visits and follow up on visits. And that is something that I heard you say years ago. And I bring it, I say it to my team. I'm like, we need to help people get visits, conduct visits and follow up on visits. So is that what we're building? Cause that's what we need to build. And, uh, and so I, I love the simplicity and the repeatability. And that's probably, uh, you know, I, I know you've been very intentional about culture, but when do you think the first time is that you said that Greg, like, when did you start honing it down into that level of simplicity, which is powerful? You know, words aside and, and the nuance of, of how you might frame that, it was clear that those were your three, there go my lights, 
they're your, your three kind of imperatives. I call them air and water, the things you better do well and better be successful at if you're going to be great in this profession. So for me, in any profession that you do or any activity, it's not hard to pick out the things that have a, a weighted consequence and importance in what you do. Um, and there's a lot of other things you could do. Uh, and it's choosing air and water, those things that sustain life or build success. So breaking it down that way and feeling like you better be great at that, you better continue to get good at that was easy for me to stay focused on. So it wasn't hard to think about. The phone was really the only avenue we had to engage these. Even email back you know, 20 years ago wasn't as widely used. It was the occasional, but we didn't have other avenues for doing it. Um, and I liked the phone. I was comfortable with it. It was, you know, I liked listening to what I was going to hear. I gained other insights from that that helped me. Um, so, yeah, I, I wish I could uh, recount back and go back in time and figure that out. We use that a lot here in our lingo with our staff, you know, other colleagues that I've worked with, whether it be John Morris or Matt White or others that have gone on. I think it's something that we all preach because we believe that simplicity uh, and, and plainly stated focus is helpful to remind people of when you're doing something, think about, are you calling for a visit, conducting a visit and following up? And if you're not, drop it and start doing one of those three. Um, it was just a simple kind of a mantra to, to remind fundraisers how to, how to be focused. At no point in the story, have you shared anything that would make me think your next move is to go do fundraising in Canada, but you did. So tell me about that one reflection on the time there and then uh you know going from canada to hawaii makes a lot of sense on some levels so just tell me about that uh that part of your career yeah so the, the journey there the choice to to move to canada it was it, it emerged from you know one of the recruiters reaching out presenting an opportunity we all get calls like this and uh, emails in this sector it happens weekly um you know, I, I probably was at a stage after about seven years at Texas A&M leading one of their biggest collegiate units, the College of Engineering, for what might be next. Um, the opportunity was uh, co-managing all of their collegiate and unit teams in, at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. They had 19 units. And so they were going to be co-managed by, by two executive directors. And I thought I was ready for that next step to work with teams to help them build their capabilities uh, identify priorities. So that was the excitement. The attraction was to go there. Now, when I got to Canada, two things that I didn't uh, expect or anticipate. One was in kind of 2008, 2009, when I left, we went through kind of an economic calamity that really challenged the sector's thought about, you know, our optimism about philanthropy. And we had some things to work through. And then second, the cultural difference in Canada around philanthropy and probably the level of sophistication and the level of uh, focus and intentionality around philanthropy as a mission function of a university was just uh, not as probably aggressive or as developed in Canada as it was in the U.S. So those were the two distinct things that I recall arriving there. The uh, economic backdrop is an important point. Um... The move to Hawaii, it's about as big as it gets in this sector. And so... Similar situation, recruiter, or was there more to that story? Yeah, it always seems to, to be that way. You're, you're sitting there humming along, enjoying what you're doing. And then, you know, a recruiter's whispering in your ear about the, some next opportunity. Certainly, it's not hard to be enamored with Hawaii right off the bat. 
Had you been previously? You know, I had not. Um, oh. First time I've traveled a lot of other places, um, but had not been to Hawaii. Um, I think, you know, number one, it was the vice president for development. So it was kind of the number two role at the University of Hawaii Foundation. Um, it was going to be in charge of all of development, the whole fundraising function. So at the University of Hawaii Foundation, they do investment management and fundraising are the two core mission functions. Uh, so I, I think there was some excitement about being able to, to build a development shop and, and to manage some of the other functions that I had not at UBC. Um, certainly the location was exciting. Uh, the CEO, Donna Vucinic, uh, I had an immediate connection with her, very thoughtful, engaging leader, somebody I respect to this day and, and admire greatly. Uh, thought there was something to learn there. And um, yeah, I thought I was ready for that next step. It was, uh, uh, to be honest, I probably hungered a little bit more for an aggressive culture of philanthropy and development than I was experiencing in Canada. Um, and, and that next step up to be kind of the, the head of all of development was was pretty enticing. So we uh, took the plunge and, and served there for four years. My wife, Katie, did a semester at the University of Hawaii at Hilo when she was at Iowa State University. So that was a pretty eye-opening big change uh, for her, having grown up on farm in Iowa. And, uh, and I guess, you know, that being said, uh, what are the challenges? I mean, it sounds amazing, right? Fundraising in paradise, what's not to love, but you're a long way from the mainland, a uh, long way from family, a long way from friends. It's a new culture. Uh, how'd you spend your time? I mean, what should people know about the complete picture besides what you might assume at a surface level? Sure. Well, I guess first and foremost, you know, every one of these universities that any of us work at professionally are different. So you have the, the DNA and the makeup of that institution itself. Geography was probably the biggest issue and challenge to contend with. So to be clear, out in the middle of the Pacific and to think you're uh, in any other than the work that you would do on the islands with alumni or companies, when you go to the continental United States or to Asia, in particular, your, your six hour hop just to get to mainland one way or the other to start your trip or your trek and your travel. So when you were going to the West Coast, whether it was San Francisco or LA or San Diego, you're talking about a six hour flight. Uh, so when you- I mean, Hawaii to LA is Boston to England. Yeah. No, that's right. And then, you know, that's just West Coast. If you were going to the middle of the country, think about when you go to some of the core areas that all of us seem to go to, whether it's Houston or Dallas or uh, going to New York and, and D.C. and some of the Florida, some of the other kind of hotspot zones where we've got a lot of alumni and retirees. You know, it requires a commitment of time well beyond what you would extend in many other roles. So, you had to be really efficient with your time. And when you were making trips, you were going for three or four days, you know, minimum to justify doing it. It's not like you ever flew for a day trip anywhere. Um, and the same going to Asia, I would say the other side of it, you know, most of the development I've done for Texas A&M or uh, for UBC was probably more continental US. Um, for UBC, a little bit of foreign travel, but in Hawaii in particular, going into Asia and to that theater into either Korea or Japan, China was uh, a quite frequent. So uh, all of the other dynamics of learning culture there, how to engage the right way, language barriers, how philanthropy worked. Uh, so I had to learn a lot 
any memories stand out or like kind of fun experiences, you know, trips gone bad? I mean, what, you know, anything stand out from that part of it in particular? Yeah, you know, I would say one of the things I had to learn, you know, was the cultural aspects and, and, you know, manners and and, uh, uh, kind of expectations from different segments of the, whether it was the Japanese, Southeast Asia, Korea, China, um, uh, any number of little things that mattered to them. And so the benefit I had is we had a very diverse staff of professionals. And so there was rarely an occasion where I didn't have a staff member, a development person that was of that community. And I could go to for counsel advice and talk about, tell me how to, number one, make an introduction and how to show respect and and you know, what would be expectations of these people that I need to understand and appreciate. So I really leaned on them a lot and actually brought many staff members with me to be part of that to uh, you know, uh, make it instantly a little bit more credible uh, and uh, probably to, to cover up any mistakes I made along the way. <laughs> Are there any, I mean, obviously it's all like, we don't want to make broad generalizations, but were there just like themes that stood out? Like if you're going to be here, this is just a little bit different in general versus if you're going to be there. I mean, I mean, any specifics that come to mind where your staff said, look, this is how it's done there. Greg, this is in Japan, it's like this. So you just got to be ready for it. Yeah, I would say I'll probably relate the example more to Hawaii in particular. So I would say even in Hawaii, there is a very, um, I want to say this the right way, uniquely insular culture uh, and dynamic there. So one of the things I think uh, you've got a lot of pockets of different kinds of population living there with different history, tradition, and background coming together. You've got a lot of tourism or transitory. Uh, populations coming in and out. So I would say in the business community or the living community of people who have been lifelong residents, um, I wouldn't call it skepticism, but I think your credibility had to be established over time. And when I mean time, I mean 20 years before you were seen as somebody of the fabric of that state, of that community, of the business sector there. So you had to have people that would extend uh, either... uh, Yeah. uh, reputation to you or would extend endorsement to you to help you uh, enter some of these groups that would engage uh, to be worthy of going to them to talk about opportunities to coach you on who to engage so who you talk to first about certain things and socialized initiatives with was as important as the initiative so if you didn't go to Walter Dodds if you didn't go to a couple of these folks and get or Uncle Walter as it might have been known uh, you're going to have a hard time this. You needed to have their endorsement and kind of their permission to take this to the next step. So that was a nuance that was interesting to learn. Got it. Thank you for sharing. And so a recruiter calls and says, let's talk about Manhattan. And you say Times Square and they say no. Yeah. <laughs> Times Square. Manhattan, Kansas. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, in the middle of everything is the way we refer to Manhattan, the Little Apple. Um Certainly, I didn't make the mistake of misunderstanding. Uh, It was clearly in the title that it was Manhattan apostrophe KS, and I knew what that meant. I did trick my wife a little bit when I first introduced the concept and just left it at Manhattan, and that didn't go over very well. But, um, you know, I was familiar with Manhattan and Kansas State through my time at Texas A&M, certainly through the conference and, and the dynamics of 
uh, the Big 12 and knowing the school by reputation, um, you, you know, there were a few staff members that I had met before um, through engineering development form and just you know, the, the journey of my career over 20 years. So I'd had a little bit of touch and connection to it. Uh, didn't know much about the reputation, the quality of the institution, but uh, it didn't take long to do a little research and do a little digging to see who the leadership was, uh, where they were in terms of size, scope. And um, you read a little bit of material on a website or in a strategic plan, and you could see the vision and the promise of the place. Um, certainly the Midwest, and, and Brent, you're, you're a product of the Midwest, the values here, uh, the cadence of life. There's a, a lot of aspects that lined up really well for me, my wife, uh, the, the things that we could value and thought where we could fit in and be great assets in the community. So that was the initial attraction. And then I would say immediately, once I read what they were trying to become in the prospectus and talking to the recruiter, and then met the president, Kurt Schultz, the athletic director, John Curry, and then the Alumni Association CEO, Amy Button Renz, I was smitten within about 20 minutes with this trio that uh, described and expressed an optimism and a promise and an affection for a place beyond what I'd probably ever heard from three professionals. And uh, I was captivated from there uh, about just their, their connection and belief in what this place could be. Um, so yeah, from there, I, I thought to myself, wow, if I had the privilege of going there, what a team to work with. Um, and then, you know, as the journey unfolded, as you I was invited to interview and met the board and learned about what they wanted to become, uh, I thought there's something you could really get your teeth into. It would really test and challenge you as a leader. Um, and I think you could do something special. So that attraction uh, was compelling enough for me to convince my wife that going from Hawaii to Manhattan was a brilliant decision. Um, in retrospect, we've never regretted it. We've always had this attitude that you love a place for what it is and don't loathe it for what it's not. Uh, we loved Hawaii, loved the tropical atmosphere and the relationships, but this was something that was going to be enriching to us personally and, and something we embraced. And so you're over eight years now in, and when you think about, uh, A, what you're most proud of in, in the accomplishments of the team and the transformation during that period, and B, what you most hope can be realized in the coming years, the still left uh, untapped potential, what comes to mind? Let's start with what you're proud of. Yeah, I, I, what I'm proud of is easiest. Um, I think in any organization or any enterprise that you join, you become part of that community. I think you decide that you wanna to rally together and do something that could be really special and remarkable. Uh, what I'm most proud of is the way this collection of people that was here in the beginning and the ones that are still here have from day one embraced this opportunity to be great. And we're willing to trust and give a little faith uh, and believe that there was a way to continuously improve, to do more, to do better, uh, and to get a better experience. So that confidence and trust that they were willing to extend to somebody new uh, and take it on faith that let's let's go on this journey and see where it goes. Um, I admire that about Midwest people, number one, the authentic, sincere, and genuine willingness to engage, uh, to trust, and to be willing to work really, really hard to do something special is there. So when I look at what's in the soil here, what's in the people and the DNA, 
Um, I've loved that from day one. And, you know, we presented a pretty bold and aspirational vision of what we could be. And we were at a place where there was an appetite for more from the university, from the board, and to be fair, probably within with some of the staff. And they have just not had an audacious enough vision about what we could do and should do to really harness all of their discretionary commitment and all of their greatness in a way that they just didn't have a way of imagining how it could be. So that to me has been what's what's been the most rewarding and most memorable part of my eight years here. I love it. What's um, what's left more? What else could be done? Well, as in our profession, you know, the, uh, the use the right word more. So um, you ask any of our university counterparts in this profession and what they'll always say is the institution's always going to need and always going to want more. Um, and they deserve more. They're great enterprises. And we know that we've got a lot that still needs to be done. I think more for our staff, more for our donors, more for our mission is the start. But it goes back to quality and experience and how do we enrich that. So this is not a quantity thing. This has become a quality thing. So I think of the things that we hold true in our core mission of what we're trying to do. Um, number one, we, we want to deliver each staff member's pinnacle career experience. So how do we harness the greatness in all of us to do a great job and continue to elevate year over year? Uh, so the appetite for more is never going to end. Second, how do we earn the right to be our donor's number one philanthropic priority through an experience and an engagement that earns that day in and day out? And how do we get them to move past just episodically doing gifts and choosing that I'm going to be a lifelong shareholder? I will continue to stay involved with moving. So for us each day, it's thinking about what do we do in our activities and what do we deliver in our experience that continues to earn that from people? So that's our high bar. That's our enduring objective in this work is how do we never get stale? How do we never get complacent? Uh, how do we continue to keep it fresh and vibrant and demonstrate to them that they matter individually? That's that I think that's the complexity and the challenge we have going forward is it's doing more, but it's doing it with a quality that's lasting um, and evolving with the expectations of the donors, the staff, and the people that we work with. Greg, when you think about all of the gifts you've been a part of that your teams have uh, developed over the years, what relationships, stories, experiences really stand out when you think about just like the absolute best you felt about this work? Who are some of the people or gifts that come to mind? You know, it, it, boy, there's so many that are memorable for different facets of what was unique about them. Uh, either gifts made in the memory of somebody else or in honor of somebody else. Probably, I would say, because it was in the early part of my career and I was still learning what philanthropy really meant to people, I, I probably looked at it a little too much like a transaction. And what told me or taught me that this was a value exchange and a statement of values for people uh, and belief in people and institutions uh, probably uh, a chair that we created for a, a faculty member named Dr. William Bryant at Texas A&M. Um, two things that taught me. Number one, he was a revered faculty member that had been on faculty for 45 years. Hundreds of graduate students produced and engaged. Um, so here I am, a green fundraiser, thinking, yeah, we'd love to create a chair. And I had this idea. What about Bill Bryant 
I met him and I found him fascinating and very engaging and uh, encouraging to me as a young person about my work. Uh, but when I threw this idea out to one of his graduate students, he immediately said, said, you know what, we ought to do that. Bill is one of the greatest faculty members that ever came through Texas A&M. Uh, we'll have a ton of people that would want to do this. I remember going back to one of my colleagues and he said, oh gosh, you got sucked into this trap of you know, trying to get a whole bunch of people to fund a gift. What I learned was uh, I called about a dozen people and they all automatically said yes to doing 50 to 100K gifts or more for this chair, for this faculty member who had been their mentor. What I didn't know was that many of these graduate students had named their children after him. He'd walked people down the aisle when they were in town during holidays, they stayed at their home. What I learned from that is faculty members could have a magical, uh, create a magical experience for our alumni that uh, that we shouldn't forget and, and should use and leverage. Uh, and that taught me of the greatness, number one, of this individual uh, and how I could use that in doing this work in a really effective way. But it also taught me, what does it mean to be a great professional in any walk of life to live that and to have that impact on people? That was pretty profound. So creating that chair for him, and then I think it was, I think it was February of 2008, not long before I left for UBC, doing a dinner that we invited Bill to secretly and having all of those donors there and those graduate students that he'd trained over 20 years be there to surprise he and his wife to give that chair. We did a rocking chair. That was pretty magical. Um, uh, yeah, I'll never forget that, that gift, what I learned from it. And uh, when faculty and the institution create that experience, how much that supports doing this kind of this great work. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's about the human to human, you know, connection. How do we elevate that and scale it? And I, I just hosted Scott Roberts, who we saw last week at, or this week at the conference too, and and he shared this experience down at Oklahoma State, where uh, different setup, but same dynamic, where they had a student at, on a panel. And on the panel, the donor shared that he was eliminating her student loans. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room and the video got shared a million times. Or it's when you see the walk-on student uh, on the football team and then they film the video when they announce that that kid's getting a scholarship and the whole team goes crazy or, or it's the, you know, Bill Bryant connection. And it's, it's so powerful when, when you see it's like the, the waters part and the philanthropy follows. So how do we do that more? It's one thing to say, would you be interested in giving to the engineering school? It's another thing to say, do you want to honor Bill Bryant? But that's the trap. And you were warned to avoid doing that sort of thing. Right. But it sounds like, so where's the disconnect? Why would people say, uh-oh, Greg, you're falling into the trap versus that's exactly what you should be doing, Greg, because it works. Yeah, I think in that case that I cited, there's many examples where people have expectations that something like this can be rallied around and done. And what's missing is that strong, endearing connection that doesn't even make it a choice for those individuals. And the occasion of those individuals I called to the Bryant chair, they couldn't think of not being part of funding that. That was the depth of that. Don't so, finish that chair without including me, Greg. I want to be a part of it. Let make yep. sure, you know. So I think to, to kind of tease out where, where 
what you're, you're reflecting on or thinking about related to this, I think if we're going to find initiatives or things like this, we have to figure out for these individual donors, what is that magical moment or that really, really endearing, impactful, life-transforming experience they had at the institution or in an activity or whatever they did that would be that thread that we ought to figure out how do we, um, how do we honor that? How do we help them use that as the motivation to inspire them to think about their philanthropy and what might it might do? Um, and even if it's not the identical thing, it's them seeing that there was that spark of something that was indelibly printed on them for the rest of their lives that we know happens for others. How do we, how do we leverage that? How do we make sure others have that same goosebump hair raising experience, uh, that thing that they never forget? Um, and I think it's just the conversation you try to have a donor with a donor about what was that one thing here, that one experience, that person, that activity, that moment that you'd love to replicate for somebody else. And how do we go um, about that? Well, here's to replicating that, Greg. I know we're at time. Um, let me let you close with the K-State Foundation uh, commercial. Are you hiring? If people want to be in touch, uh, you know, how, how do they find more? I know you're active on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, so Brent, thank you very much. Number one, I want to thank you and your team and, and what you folks do in the sector. I, I, I think your technology platform, your company's mission and the, your staff are incredible. Um, what you're doing to help improve the sector's ability to complete our missions is necessary and, and imperative for us as we go forward. So I applaud you. your work here and giving us these forums to share because I think the other thing, uh, the more we learn about what motivates us to do this work, why it matters and why we care is really important. Um, you know, certainly at the Kansas State Foundation, we're, we always are hiring. Um, I don't think we're ever not in talent acquisition mode and development mode. And so certainly as any of our, our listeners out there, those watching, you know, have a desire to be in this sector or this field, we'd love to visit with anybody who has that interest. Certainly Manhattan in the middle of everything, uh, you know, here in Manhattan, Kansas, if you're ever in the area coming in for athletic events or other things, we're always welcoming uh, to those who visit uh, our, our area. Uh, certainly through our website, it's an easy way to connect with me in person. Um, I do a lot of engagement with other leaders and organizations nationally. I think one of the great things about our sector is we all don't feel like we compete. We share everything that we've learned or seen that works well so that others can be great. And I've appreciated so many others that have done that for me throughout my career and continue to do that for us. Let's close on that note, Greg. Who are some of those people, just friends in the industry, folks you've kind of grown up with, um, you know, that are on your your speed dial? Yeah, speed dial is interesting. It's, you know, it's uh, so many. When I, I think about mentors, people who really gave me a lot of advice in this sector, I go back to my Texas A&M days for sure as a, a very new uh, emerging professional. Uh, you know, Eddie Joe Davis, the CEO of the A&M Foundation at the time was a giant to me in the way he handled himself. Jim Palinsar, a senior vice president for development, Carl Jedicke, the director of development, uh, and then Henry Nemsek in particular was the campaign director and made a lot of extra time for me for my silly questions and lifting me up. Um, so those were early mentors, certainly colleagues that I stay connected with. You know, I would say that entire Big 12 contingent of CEOs and VPs are, are folks that I constantly engage for ideas, encouragement, 
uh, maybe a little commiseration here and there. I mean, you all like being on panels and seeing you present, it really just looks like a group of friends. Oh, it totally is. Hanging out because you are. Yeah. Well, at that group in particular, because we have a more frequency to engage, uh, you know, beyond the Big 12, whether it's through CASE or AGB, other forums that we do. And then just naturally, we have intersections and some donors that we work with. So, uh, you know, you think of a Blair Atkinson or Dale Seiferling before he retired at KU and, uh, you know, Jerome, and that there's so many of them that I'm on speed dial with constantly. And then, you know, I extend that even further, the, the national, you know, contingent of leaders that are involved with AGB and CASE on some of those commissions and councils I serve on are folks I constantly engage uh, for advice and, and we share insights, wisdom, and tips. Um, I, that's my encouragement to anybody, you know, listening here you know, I think you need to be proactive about building that network and nurturing it. It can't be a one-way thing. You got to give back. You got to reach out. Um, I think of any time I reach out to one of them out of the blue, they say, God, I was, you know, thinking I need to call you or something. And it's, I think we all think about it. We just need to make more time for it. Yeah. Do it. Do it. If you're not sure, that's a good closing thought. Kind of like beginning the career. You're not sure. Pick up the phone and call. All right. Well, to everyone here, I wish you best. As you get visits, conduct visits, and follow up on visits, I'd encourage you to reach out to Greg. Uh, They've got a great culture. They take it seriously. Awesome team. So collaborative. We appreciate uh, the opportunity to work with you, Greg, and wish you all nothing but the best. So here's to good things, okay? Thank you, Brent. Appreciate everything you do. And to all those listening out there, watching, you know, Keep up the great work. Appreciate what you do in the profession. Take care. Everybody. All right, everybody. With that, Brent signing off with today's guest, Greg Willems, who serves as president and CEO at the Kansas State University Foundation. Take care, everybody. <laughs>